0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the lecture podcast for the introduction and first chapter of H. Writer Haggard's novel, She. You can find a link to the novel in your Canvas module. Please make sure that you've read the introduction and first chapter of She before you listen to this lecture. So it's probably a safe bet that this is the first time that you've ever read or even heard of the novel, She. As far as 21st century literature goes, it's not the most popular text. And there's a good reason for that. This is a 19th century British novel published in the 1880s by H. Ryder Haggard, uh, a very interesting person that we'll talk more about over the course of the semester. While the novel is not well known today, it was extremely popular in the 19th century and we're going to use this novel and the reading of it as a way to investigate uh, both how it works as a text and what as a text it can tell us about the period that it came from and the people who read it, as well as the person who wrote it. So when we look at texts this way, Sort of performing an aspect of cultural studies. And the definition of a definition of cultural studies can be found on page two of your lecture slides. Viewing and analyzing practically any recorded phenomenon, present or past, as a social text. So social text sounds really interesting, and it is really interesting. Basically, we look at texts as documents that are produced by a particular time and culture but also that can tell us about the time and culture that produced them so when we read things that don't come from our moment from our culture we learn about the culture that produced it we also learn about ourselves because one of the things that if you're like me will happen to you quite a bit as you read this novel is you'll be struck by how much things have changed, how much ideas of the world, of culture, of empire, of gender, of race uh, in 21st century America do not look like they did in the 19th century for British authors like Haggard. And you'll also probably be struck by how much they still do. And that can be, as we'll see, incredibly problematic. So there's a lot to be gained from reading a text like this. That said, this is not going to be an easy read. With texts like she, like this novel, Uh, that is so far outside of our own context, of our own time period, you're going to have to work harder to make sure that you're not missing what's going on. So all of the skills that you learned uh, when you were focusing on critical reading, you wanna use to read she. Look up the words and phrases you don't know. Google is your friend here. It doesn't take too long to figure out what something is, or at least get a broad strokes overview of it. And even though you might find yourself googling quite a few things, especially because you might find yourself googling quite a few things, whether they're phrases, words, uh, people, That's good, you want to have that context because you will get lost in the story if you don't. So if you don't recognize it, look it up. If you try to look it up and you can't find the information that you're looking for, please ask me, send me a Canvas message, send me an email. Uh, I will not only answer it for you, I will put the answer in the next week's lecture slides so that everyone can have that information. So hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you have already read the introduction and the first chapter of She. Uh, the introduction is set up like a preface. Um, it's not going to be written by the narrator, or it's not going to be spoken by the narrator that we will have for the rest of the story. This is supposedly the text's editor. And it's really interesting that I've been calling She a novel. It is a novel. A novel is a fictional text, a story. Uh, the editor the editor character here, doesn't present it as a fictional text. Instead, he presents it as a manuscript that reflects a true story that was handed to him by the novel's narrator, Horace Holly. We'll talk more about him later. So we don't spend a lot of time with the editor, but we do get him for the introduction, and we learn a little bit about him, not explicitly, He doesn't always confide in us who he is uh, and what he cares about. But implicitly, you can learn quite a lot. One of the things you probably noticed as you're reading is that there is a quotation, and that is not in English. And it is, in fact, Latin. So if you look at slide four, I've put out the quotation here. Ver doctissimus et amicus neus. And for anyone who speaks or reads Latin, I apologize for my pronunciation there. Uh, That said, how many of you guys Googled what it means? In my head, I picture you all nodding enthusiastically. Yes, of course we did. Uh, If you didn't, start doing that. One of the amazing things about the version of this text that you're able to read is that it is free. Project Gutenberg organizes all of these texts um, and gives public access to them, and that is fantastic. But one of the things it doesn't do is add handy things like subtitles explaining languages that are not English. So it's on you. So you googled this. Of course you did. And hopefully you found something like this translation on page, on slide five. The most learned man and the friend of the man in the middle. Okay, so that's interesting. Uh, the most learned man and the friend of the man. In the, what do you guys think man in the middle might mean here? And what sort of description is this? Definitely one that praises learning. But man in the middle, middle how, middle culturally, middle economically, uh, middle as in, in the middle of a dispute, could mean a number of different things. One of the things that you might also have found out as you were doing this research, depending on the source that you clicked, is that this is, in fact, not very good Latin. And that tells you something about the editor, perhaps, that he's not as educated as he thinks he is. Or perhaps it tells you something about the author, that H. Ryder Haggard is not as necessarily educated as he thinks he is. But also the use of Latin in a 19th century story like this. Uh, As you guys all know, 19th century British people did not use Latin as a common language. They spoke English. Uh, So this is an indicator that the audience that this story is written for, or at least the perception of the audience, is, implies a kind of education. Is this logical that most British people would understand this? Not necessarily. But you can see that the author wants the characters to seem like this is the world they lived in, a highly, highly educated world. And in fact, the first uh, place that we see this novel taking shape is in Cambridge, a British university. And we'll talk more about that educated culture in a second. So if I ask you what you know about 19th century England, it's okay if the answer to that is not a whole lot. But knowing a bit about the 19th century and knowing a bit about the way England functioned in the 19th century will really help you to understand this novel. And this is one of the things that I really like best about what I do, about critical reading, about the study of literature and writing, is that for me, this is a much more exciting way to learn about history. Please don't tell any historians I said this, but I think that having a way to sort of get context and to analyze through a particular example is useful and rewarding. And I'm hoping that over the course of the semester, you guys will agree with me. So 19th century England, when, when and where this novel is produced uh, and, or at least part of it, where the novel is set. The 19th century was the height of the British Empire, Uh, and by the end of the 19th century, nearly a quarter of the Earth's land surface was part of the British Empire. I can't stress enough. That's one quarter, so that would be more than 400 million people who were governed from Great Britain, Uh, and there's an old saying, the sun never sets on the British Empire, meaning that these territories were so far flung that it would be daytime in one part of in one colony, and it would be nighttime in another. This uh, slide seven includes an incomplete list of British colonies, including Austria, British Guiana, Brunei, Canada, Cyprus, Egypt, Gambia, the Gold Coast, Hong Kong, British India, Ireland, Kenya, Malawi, the Malay States, Malta, Mauritius, New Zealand, Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Singapore, Somaliland, South Africa, the Sudan, Rhodesia, Trinidad and Tobago. This is also Just to point out, not a complete list, but if you're familiar with these places, or even if you're not, just looking at a globe, this is a lot. And these are vastly disparate cultures, right? Different peoples, different places. So how did they all become British? Ah, okay. Through the process of imperialism and colonialism. And these are two terms that are also really important to understanding 19th century Britain, but also to understand 19th century everything and particularly the role that it plays in this novel. Now i am been Britain here because I'm talking about the United Kingdom, which is not the same thing as England. England is part of the United Kingdom. It is the driving part of the United Kingdom, but it is one country in an alliance in which basically England uh, sort of took over Wales, Scotland, and part of Ireland. And so that's the United Kingdom. This is a thing in the 19th century, uh, The Queen of England is also the Queen of Britain and the sort of overseer, at least nominally, of this entire empire. The reason that the 19th century is called the Victorian era, or at least part of it is, a large part of it is called the Victorian era, is because of the British monarch, which was Queen Victoria before Queen Elizabeth II, the current Queen of England. Victoria was the longest reigning monarch, and she had a lot of influence and authority. And we'll talk about how she appears in this novel, because she does. And let's go back to these ideas of imperialism and colonialism. Imperialism is a process that involves claiming and exploiting territories outside of one's own national boundaries. Uh, so you build an empire through imperialism, through claiming and exploiting for resources, uh, for labor, etc., places that are not initially yours. So Great Britain seized territories in order to increase its own holdings, uh, to enhance its prestige, to secure trade routes, to obtain raw materials. Like sugar, spices, tea, tin, and rubber, and to procure markets for those goods. So, imperialism is this process of acquisition. The British didn't invent this process, right? If you've studied other time periods, go back a little bit, talk about the Spanish Empire, um, Dutch, Portuguese, it's all there. But they're the focus of this segment. And this particular time, at this particular time in the 19th century, they are hands down the most successful. So that's imperialism. Colonialism, and see this one on slide 10, involves settling the t- these territories that imperialism has acquired. And colonialism also involves the transformation of the social structure, culture, government, and economies of the people in these newly colonized places. So colonialism is the process of adapting the resources you've taken, adapting the lands you've taken, adapting the people you've taken in the sort of image of what the colonizing country and culture wants them to be. And there's all sorts of rhetoric about what this process entails and who it benefited and how, uh, unsurprisingly, the rhetoric that the British used to describe colonialism was very uh, positive. They talked about reforming cultures, bringing them into the light, uh, giving them modern conveniences, technologies, and access to a superior culture. And if that phrase is squicking you out a little bit, superior culture, good. Uh, because the, the other side of this, the counterargument to colonialism is that no one asked the British to do this, that in fact, no one really likes to have someone else's values, beliefs, etc. overlaid onto their own. So imperialism and colonialism are linked, they're not exactly the same thing. And it's good to keep in mind that the effects of colonialism as well as the effects of imperialism, are very much themes in this book. And that makes sense, right? Because the average 19th century British person's life was very much influenced by the fact that they belonged to the British Empire. Even if you never left England and a variety of English people didn't, you would still be constantly surrounded by products uh, and people sometimes from places that belonged to the empire. So tea, the sort of staple of English life, comes from India. Uh, also, colonialism in itself was a huge career, uh, source of careers. You could go into imperial government, you could go into the army, you could go into all of these different things that have provided opportunity for English British citizens. So we talked a little bit about the rhetoric of colonialism. Just a second, I want to show you guys an example of that rhetoric. So, on slide eleven, I'm just put a phrase for you here: "The White Man's Burden." This might sound familiar; it might not. It's actually the title of a very famous poem uh, written by Rudyard Kipling. He's the author of The Jungle Book. Uh, and he published this poem in 1899. And he actually published this poem on the anniversary of the United States acquiring territory. Uh, and this poem was Kipling's celebration for the United States, basically saying, welcome to the imperial project. Welcome to what it is to be an empire, what it is to be a colonizer. So let me just read you guys a little bit of this poem. And you can see this excerpt on slide 12. This is not the whole poem, but if you click on the link in the slides, you can open the poem, and there's also a history of a little bit more of the context. But Here we go. Take up the white man's burden, send forth the best ye breed, go send your sons to exile to serve your captive's need, to wait in heavy harness on fluted folk and wild, your new caught and sullen peoples, half devil and half child, Take up the white man's burden in patience to abide, to veil the threat of terror and check the show of pride. By open speech and simple, and hundred times made plain, to seek another's profit and work another's gain. Take up the white man's burden and reap his old reward, the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. The cry of hosts humor, and ah, slowly to the light, why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian knight. So there's a lot going on here. Uh, One thing that it's important to establish right away is that he is saying all of this completely unironically. He means this sincerely. And what he's saying, it's what happens when you take up the white man's burden, uh, is you send your uh, sons to exile to serve your captive's need. So this is this idea that people you send out uh, in armies, in colonial administration, in their... um, they're going into exile because they're not in England, they're not in civilization anymore. So that makes some really interesting assumptions about cultural difference there, right? If it's not England, it's not civilization. To serve your captive's need, this also tells you about the relationship between colonizer and colonized. The colonized people are not equals here, right? He's explicitly acknowledging them as captives. But again, He's not seeing these captives sympathetically. He calls them new-caught, sullen peoples, half-devil and half-child. So that's explicitly racist, right? If you're not English, if you're not white, this is the white man's burden, then you're not human, half-devil and half-child. This is super explicit, super racist, uh, super off-putting, if you're a 21st century audience, but this is him articulating, this is Kipling articulating, this underlining, underlining, excuse me, underlining, underlying, both of those things, colonial logic. To take up the white man's burden is to seek another's profit and work another's gain. So he's implying that The white men, the British, the colonizers, they did all this for the benefit of the people they colonized. This is categorically untrue. Uh, Colonialism was hugely profitable, not for the colonized states and nations, but for the colonizers. So this is uh, a little bit of blatant hypocrisy, a little bit more blatant hypocrisy. The last stanza that I showed you guys, or the last few lines that I showed you guys, uh, is... Adding even more to this it says, if you take up the white man's burden, you reap his old reward, and that is the blame of those ye better, the hate of those ye guard. So you do all this generously from the the you know from the goodness of your heart. You go out, you share civilization, you work for someone else's gain, and they're not even grateful. Why aren't they grateful? Why brought ye us from bondage, our loved Egyptian night? So, the, this idea that the people that you're colonizing won't even love you for it, won't understand that they're being dragged from something awful, from bondage, from night, and into something better. So, so many assumptions here, so little uh, empathy, so little identification with these colonized peoples. Uh, and so much sympathy for the white man, so much so much uh, sympathy for his burden. And again, if you're a 21st century reader, this is incredibly off-putting, right? Chances are that this reads uh, almost like a parody, but it wasn't, it wasn't. Uh, this is the very, very racist, very, very self-serving logic that went into the colonial project. And lest you think that this was just some weird dude Uh, who had some weird thoughts and everyone was too polite to mention that he was nuts. No, Uh, this poem was incredibly popular. uh, And it made its way into not just the sort of literary canon, but also into cultural iconography. So one of the ways that you can tell uh, when you're studying a time period, how effective something is, how much it matters, is where you see it show up in other places. I'll give you an example from the 21st century. Harry Potter, right? Right. Harry Potter isn't just a series of books and movies. It's also an incredible amount of merchandise. You can find little Harry Potter bobbleheads, uh, sweaters, stickers, um, sorting how, you know, we can tell that it had cultural impact because of the way it proliferates, at least in part because of the way it proliferates outside of itself, because of all the cultural products and references that have grown up around it, amusement park rides. And interestingly also, uh, the Harry Potter author has becoming a subject of some controversy now. This is sort of interesting to watch culture progress. Not the point of this lecture. Sorry, got a little distracted. Anyway, back to the white man's burden. We can tell that this poem and the ideology that it is celebrating are super successful or important to this culture because, like, Harry Potter, it started to show up in places that weren't just literature. And so if you look on slide 13, I'll give you a really good example of that. This is an advertisement for pear's soap, and it uses this language of the white man's burden as a way to advertise for the soap. So if you look at the ad copy there, it says, the first step towards lightening the white man's burden is through, the teaching, is through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. Pear soap is a potent factor in brightening the dark corners of the earth as civilization advances, while amongst the cultured of all nations, it holds the highest place. It is the ideal toilet soap. So if we, even if we just look at the text of this advertisement, there's a lot going on, Right. The first step toward lightening the white man's burden. There's kind of a joke there, or at least a, a bit of a pun. Uh, lightening a burden is to make it lighter. But also, if we're talking about whiteness, uh, lighting lightening kind of plays into that, right? To lighten something to make it whiter. Also kind of the function of soap. Uh, and that kind of language continues throughout the ad copy a potent factor in brightening the dark corners of the earth. Now, this soap doesn't glow in the dark. That's not what, right? Like, but it's, it's tagging on to this cultural metaphor. This idea that white culture, uh, the white man's burden, is to bring light, civilization, brightness, to teach the virtues of cleanliness implies that. People who are not white won't understand that, right? Half devil and half child. You must teach people to use soap. And oh, what a coincidence. Here we have this amazing company that is selling soap that we could use to teach this cleanliness. So see the way commodity culture, the way the kind of capitalism, the mechanics of empire feed in here. Um, It is ideologically really relevant. It is soap that can attack the white man's burden, but it's also... A product that can conveniently be bought and that will be manufactured from resources, raw materials imported from these colonies. So here you have the kind of loop of capitalism, excuse me, of um, colonialism, of imperialism, in one kind of succinct place. There's the cultural product that justifies it: the language, the literature, the ad placement. Oh, what a good thing it is to take up the white man's burden. They're the products that come from this loop of resources to commodity. And there's a sort of sense that everyone is profiting. And if you look at the pictures, you can sort of see that, see the very, very white uniform of the very, very white haired uh, white man who is washing his hands presumably with this pair of soap. You can see also that he's wearing a uniform that sort of speaks to the military aspect of imperialism. Uh, and you can see in the corners here we have we have a sailing type ship, we have a more modern ship like a riverboat, then we have docks in the lower left-hand corner where casks of soap are being unloaded, and then let's look in the lower right-hand corner here, we apparently have a white guy offering soap to a grateful native, and you can see he is well-dressed, I don't know if well-dressed, he's dressed, he's got a hat, he's got his coat on, um, and he's holding out some soap, and he has, he's being Thanked. he's being he's offering the soap to a non-white person on their knees not wearing uh, the Paddington Bear outfit of hat and coat here so what we have is a kind of loop the the story that the ad copy is relying on that it's telling in these illustrations and all of this to sell you soap And it's very much in this context of the white man's burden, of this kind of not just process of imperialism and colonialism, but rhetoric that justifies and explains it, that trades on these ideas of whiteness equaling superiority, of colonialism being not just an economic endeavor, but an intellectual and cultural project that betters everyone. That is the time period that she is coming from. And those are the people that she is being written for, this sort of white audience, the kind of people who believe in the white man's burden. That's not to say that if you're in the 19th century, you don't necessarily see problems with these, with this process and with this project. Some of those problems might feel subconscious. Some of the tension, some of the drama of, of what this is, uh, is easier to not acknowledge not think about or to think about in fiction uh, because you can sort of fiction is often considered a safe space or a safer space to talk about things that might get you in trouble for talking about in public or for worrying about in public and public meaning sort of like different forums non-fiction forums or just wondering out loud so we can might think about she in that context as well. All right, so on to the novel itself, on to she, and the way this novel is set up, it's as a framed narrative, meaning that you don't just dive right into the story, instead you get an introduction uh, that frames it, that sort of deploys what it is, or describes what it is, and then you go into the story. So the way this novel is structured, there's an introduction written by an editor, um, The editor sets up the story as if this were a true account that has been sent to him by Horace Hawley. Horace Hawley is one of the characters in the novel and after the introduction, he is the narrator, the person telling the story. But before we get to Hawley, we get to the editor's introduction. And this is a really interesting device because it lets us see the main characters in the story through another set of eyes before we see them through the eyes of one of them, through Holly's eyes. Um, the world that the editor establishes is the world of the 19th century. It's 19th century England, particularly the world of 19th century uh, education right, through Cambridge, this college, and the sort of associations with Cambridge and university life. So. 19th century university education in Britain is about uh, a kind of elitism. Not everyone goes to university. The people who do are extremely educated And that is considered a virtue. There's social status associated with that. One of the things you probably notice from the description from the editor and from Hawley's own descriptions as he talks about Cambridge and what he is there, a scholar, uh, not quite a professor, but someone who studies and who is um, an expert. One of the things you'll probably notice other than the sort of privileging of intellect and learning is that there are no women. There are no female students in this university. This is very purely a male space. Uh, and that is an accurate reflection of university life in the 19th century. It's also something that Holly seems to value very highly. And that's interesting as well. If you look at slide 15, you can see an excerpt that talks about what this novel, she supposedly is, according to Holly. Uh, And Holly, remember, is a character. So here you have a description uh, of the time that they, or a reminder that these characters supposedly met this editor, and a description of what this novel supposedly is going to be i.e., a truthful fact or a truthful account of Holly's own adventures. Now it's worth pointing out that all of these characters are fictional. The editor does not really exist, Holly doesn't really exist, Leo doesn't really exist. But this novel, this fictional text, is going through a lot of trouble at the beginning to make sure that readers know how factual it is. So this is a fictional story that is pretending not to be fictional. And by doing this, it's sort of piggybacking onto a very popular literary genre of the 19th century which is the exploration narrative. This idea that this is a very true account of someone going somewhere else uh, to do something exciting, to learn new things, to conquer new things, very much part of this kind of colonial project. This is not what this is, but this is what is going to, uh, this is the shape it's going to take, and in fact, this kind of adventure narrative, of travel narrative, both fictional and not so much, is again a very popular genre in the 19th century. But it's really interesting and worth pointing out that at least at the beginning, this novel is insisting that it is not in fact a novel. And we go through all the trouble, or Haggard, the author of the novel, goes through all the trouble of creating not just these fictional characters, but a fictional editor so that he can say that this novel is travel narrative, that it is this very true account. The characters, the main characters of the story, or at least two of the main characters of the story, Leo and Holly, we meet them right away. And we see them first through the editor's eyes and then we see them through uh, Holly's eyes, since he becomes our primary narrator. So if you look at the names here, um, these are not their whole names, but these are their most commonly used names. These are the names they use to refer to themselves. Holly's is his last name. Ludwig Horace Holly is his full name. It's a good one, yeah. Leo is a first name. In fact, it is a sort of shortened nickname. And think about the interesting part of that. Leo's last name, Vinci, uh, from Vincere, the Latin word for conquest or conquering on the nose there. The Think about the difference between a nickname that is the shortened version of your first name and a nickname or that is your last name. Different sort of contacts there, but that's what we're working with here. So Leo and Holly, really interesting names. If you look at slide 17, I just want to include a little bit of literary terminology for you here talk a lot about symbols when we talk about analyzing text and a symbol is something that is both itself and something else. It's a concrete object uh, or concept that is linked to larger concepts and some symbols are sort of universally recognizable, some have meaning based on context and situation. So I've given you here two images that sort of show you how this works. So I've given you a heart and a skull and crossbones. And if I were to ask you what a heart symbolizes, you might tell me love, right? Uh, Hearts are for love. Or if you were thinking about Instagram, you might think about liking. But what is a heart if you see it on, say, a menu? Heart healthy, perhaps. What is a heart when you see it on a driver's license? Then it means you're an organ donor. We have the capacity to look at this heart And to figure out what it means based on context, because it's a familiar symbol. We're used to interpreting it. We look at the heart, we think, heart, oh, organ in our body, but also something with which we associate a lot of different things. Health is something we associate with heart. We also associate love and caring. So every time we see that symbol come up, we think about it and the things we understand it to mean. We know that a heart is often more than a heart. We understand that when you say I gave my heart to someone, you don't literally mean you ripped it out of your chest. It means you fell in love with them. So we know the symbol, and we know kind of what it means. And we're able to overlay its meaning onto, or sort of figure out what it means from the context that we're seeing it in. We recognize the heart as both itself and something else. The same can be said of the skull and crossbones, right? Uh, Usually associated with danger, death, It's a pirate symbol. If you see it on a flag in the ocean, it means don't drink this. It's poisonous. If you see it on a bottle in the cupboard, Uh, if you see it on a gate in Europe, that means there's a cemetery. But again, this idea of the skeleton being death, we have that connection. We have that symbolic meaning and we can use the symbol to extrapolate that. Sometimes character names are symbolic. Their names tell us who the person is and something about them. And that's very true in this novel. I'll give you an example. Leo, Leo, meaning lion, there's the constellation Leo. There is the fact that the lion is the symbol of Britain, of empire, uh, of this kind of lineage and tradition. English history, which is, as you will learn from about Leo, very much his story. He's this last son of a great lineage from empire to empire to empire. Uh, and he's got this name that makes him the embodiment of the British empire. Um, it is also a very kind of, how to describe, it's, it's a very sort of resonant symbol for this colonial project because he's young and athletic and blonde and just such, a, um, such an icon, such a product of his culture and, and this idea of empire. So Leo is all of these things. Leo's the lion, he's the British lion. What about Holly? Does Holly's name have any kind of significance or imagery? The answer to that is yes, sorry, that was a leading question. But think about what Holly might symbolize and how it's different uh, from Leo. So what do we know about Leo? I have a couple quotes for you on slide 19. Uh, The first is the description uh, that the editor gives of Leo. One of these gentlemen was, I think without exception, the handsomest young fellow I've ever seen. He was very tall, very broad, and had a look of power and a grace of bearing that seemed as native to him as it is to a wild stag as a kind of deer in addition his face was almost without flaw a good face as well as a beautiful one and when he lifted his hat which he did just then to a passing lady I saw that his head was covered with little golden curls glowing close to the scalp okay so let's uh, look at this a little more detail he's very very good-looking right he's tall he's broad he looks powerful and graceful kind of like a lion Uh, Although he's not compared to a lion, he's compared to a stag, another kind of British symbol. Um, His face is almost without flaws. It's beautiful. And he has curly golden hair, just like a little lion's mane. The next paragraph I've taken from a little bit later in that description, um, the editor is kind of editorializing about Leo's effect on women. He remarks to my friend at the time that he was not the sort of man whom it would be desirable to introduce to the lady one was going to marry, since it was exceedingly probable that the acquaintance would transfer, would an end transfer of her affections. He was altogether too good looking. And what is more, he had none of that conscientious and conceit about him, which usually afflicts handsome men and makes them deservedly disliked by their fellows. So Leo is just so pretty. He's so handsome that you can't introduce him to the woman you want to marry. And that again, emphasizes how ridiculously good-looking Leo is, but it also tells you a little bit about how the editor thinks about women, right? That they are just going to be captivated by beauty, that beauty alone is the only thing they care about, and this guy is so good-looking that they'll immediately forget everything else. So if you're listening to this thinking, wow, that's not a high opinion of women that this guy has here, you're not wrong. And we'll see that other characters in this novel, tend to share that sort of lack of faith in women. So let's go now to slide 20, which is the narrator's description, or excuse me, the editor's description of Holly from the introduction. I looked and found the older man quite as interesting in his way as the glorified specimen of humanity at his side. That glorified specimen would be Leo. He appeared to be about 40 years of age, and I and was, I think, as ugly as his companion was handsome. To begin with, he was shortish, rather bow-legged, very deep-chested, with unusually long arms. He had dark hair and small eyes, and the hair grew right down on his forehead, and his whiskers grew right up to his hair, so that there was uncommonly little of his countenance to be seen, although he reminded me forcibly of a gorilla, and yet there was something very pleasing and genial about the man's eye. I remember saying that I should like to know know him." Okay. So, in this first excerpt, you get that Holly is deliberately set up to be the exact opposite of Leo. He is not handsome. He looks not like a lion or a stag, but like a gorilla. Uh, And another thing you want to know about the 19th century is that this is when Darwin's theory of evolution became. A sort of phenomenon. It's where he sort of gained cultural purchase, and but that purchase wasn't universal. Um, there was a kind of backlash against it. it was called the monkey theory uh, by some people. And this idea that he looks like a gorilla is sort of implying that he looks backward, not quite human. Um, he looks like a lesser version, although he does have nice eyes. And The editor says that he would like to know this guy. So Leo, he doesn't want to introduce to any of his his lady friends because he's just too good looking. Holly is pleasantly ugly, and this guy would like to know him for what it's worth. Get another little bit of description uh, about Holly. And this is what the editor observes when women come up to Leo and Holly. I remember being rather amused because of the change of expression of the elder man, whose name I discovered was Holly, when he saw the ladies advancing. He suddenly stopped short in his talk, cast a reproachful look at his companion, and with an abrupt nod to myself, turned and marched off alone across the street. I heard afterwards that he was popularly supposed to be as much afraid of a woman as most people are of a mad dog, which accounted for his precipitate retreat. So guys, make sure you're looking up the words that you don't know precipitate, it's hasty, Um, countenance, face. Okay, so reproachful, uh, reproving, indignant. Holly is as much afraid of women as most people are of mad dogs. Again, the theme in this description is not very flattering to women, right? They're flighty, they're like mad dogs, Holly really, really doesn't like them. That's a lot. This is also not a very flattering description of Holly, and Holly's own description of himself, which I've included on page 21 or slide 21, is also not flattering. Like Cain, I was branded by nature with the stamp of abnormal ugliness, as I was gifted by nature with iron and abnormal strength and considerable intellectual powers. So ugly was I that the spruce young men of my college, though they were proud enough of my feats of endurance and physical prowess, did not even care to be seen walking with me. Was it wonderful that I was misanthropic and sullen? Was it wonderful that I brooded and worked alone and had no friends, at least only one? I was set apart by nature to live alone and draw comfort from her breast and hers only. Women hated the sight of me. Only a week before I had had heard one call me a monster when she thought I was out of hearing and say I had converted her to the monkey theory." So this, again, would be Darwin's theory of evolution. Uh, That's that's an insult that he's monkey, half monkey, half man, that he looks enough like a monkey to convince her that humans evolved from monkeys. Uh, Cain, biblical figure, the outcast. But he also tells us that he's really smart and really strong, ugly, but smart and strong. When he says wonderful here, was it wonderful that I was misanthropic and sullen? To be misanthropic is to hate people. Wonderful doesn't mean great. It doesn't mean wonderful the way we use it now in the 21st century. Wonderful means surprising. Is it it surprising? Is it wonderful? Um, Does it cause a sense of wonder? No, right? He's implying that this is very logical because of the way society treats him for his looks. He reacts the way that he does. So we learn from the editor and we later have confirmed for us by Holly himself that the initial way that characters react to Leo and Holly, is based very much on their appearances, uh, and that in some ways, the way they define themselves is also based on these appearances. Uh, We're going to leave the introduction in just a second, but before we do that, uh, I just want to show you guys on slide 22, where the editor can't resist, again, editorializing a little bit on the story that we readers have not yet heard. He, in fact, goes through this paragraph in his postscript, where he talks about she, we don't know who she is yet, Asha, A-Y-E-S-H-A, one of the characters to come up, it's pronounced Asha, although if you want to pronounce it some other way, that's all right, no worries. Um, Basically, this paragraph speculates about the events of the story that we readers haven't yet read. And Haggard, the author of the novel, does this deliberately, right? He does this for some reason. In some ways, it's a little bit spoilery, or at least it's a little bit confusing. Because if we don't know what's going to happen, but we already have this narrator's opinion of what's going to happen, then we sort of carry it with us. We take it with us. We're never really able to separate ourselves from it. Um, And he asks this question, why does Asha, this character we haven't met yet, why does she choose Holly or why does she choose Leo and not Holly? Because the editor says he wouldn't have made that choice. What is pretty after all? Anyway. So we get quite a bit out of this introduction and then the editor disappears never to be seen again. I just want to check check in with you guys really quickly as you are reading because a lot happens. Uh, in the introduction. A lot happens in the first chapter. So like based on what you've read so far, what kind of novel is this going to be? Because we get this set up from the editor, which is very much about this is a true story, these are real people. In the first chapter we get Holly uh, before he is Leo's guardian when he's a younger scholar and he's visited by Leo's father who has a tragic backstory of his own. Uh, He comes in the dead of night and tells Holly, look, I need you to raise my kid. This is slide 24. I've known for some time I could not last, and since I realized the fact I've been searching for someone to whom I could confide the boy and this, he tapped the iron box. You are the man, Holly, for like a rugged tree, you are hard and sound at core. Listen, the boy will be the only representative of one of the most ancient families in the world, and that is so far as families can be traced. So here we have the narrative shifting a bit, right? Here we have a kind of lineage, a kind of adventure. Uh, Guy shows up in the dead of night with a baby and a mysterious box talking about lost lineage. Um, This is almost an Arthurian legend now, almost a kind of sword in the stone tale. The the chosen one, you must protect the chosen one. Um, You are to undertake to have the boy Leo to live with you till he's 25 years of age. On his 25th birthday, your guardianship will end, and you will then, with the keys I've given you now, open the iron box and let him see and read the contents and say whether or not he is willing to undertake the quest. So a couple things here. It's definitely a quest narrative now. He's got to raise the kid. He's got to give the kid the box. It's all very chosen oney. But also, 25 is very old to have a guardian. This is particularly true in British England, right? Uh, the age of majority for people... In, Basically, the age of which you become an adult uh, is, in, for 21st century Americans, 18. This was also true for British people in the 19th century. So he's basically, he gets custody of Leo uh, long after Leo is legally an adult. Uh, and it might sort of let you wonder, let you think a little bit. Normally, in British society, this doesn't happen to men as much. And having a guardian doesn't mean that you lose all your legal rights but it is much more common for this to be done to women. Women have guardians until they get married because they aren't considered intellectual or legal citizens on the same level. So Leo is interesting here Leo's future is interesting here because on one hand he's being set up as the chosen one. He has this destiny. He's going to have a guardian. He has this mysterious box to open. But he's also being kind of established as a little bit hapless here that he needs this protector, that he needs to be sort of watched and cared for uh, in an almost feminine way. I'm just going to go back to my question. Based on what you've read from the introduction, based on what you've read from chapter one, how are these things going to overlay? How are we going to take this very sort of Adventure narrative, like grounded in reality. Here is 19th century Cambridge, scholars, education, all of that, uh, and then added on to this very sort of almost Arthurian uh, quest narrative, legend. Uh, old fam- last remaining heir of this amazing family has this ama- amazing quest. How are these pieces going to come together? Where else is this novel going to go? And I don't expect you guys to be able to answer this definitively. That's why you're reading the rest of the novel. But I do think it's a good place to sort of take stock and think. Based on what's happened in these first chapters, where is this gonna go? Please remember also that you wanna make sure that you're looking up words, phrases, concepts, ideas that are unfamiliar. Just take little notes as you go. Ask many questions that you can't find the answers to uh, and enjoy the reading. And I'll be back with more for you next week.